Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and we are wrapping up a five-week series of what basically was a webinar that we did back in 2018, and we wanted to give people an opportunity to join live and be part of a teaching that was at the intersection of faith and freedom and of particular interest to Christian libertarians. And we wrapped up with Art Cardin talking about competition and why Christians should care about competition. I think this is an important issue because there are a lot of mostly people on the left and even people on the right who don't think competition is a good thing. It sounds bad outside the context of like sports and stuff on the market. Competition is often seen as something that is less important or less desirable in in our world than cooperation. And of course, there's some myths regarding that. So Art Cardin is a familiar voice on this podcast. He's most recently talked to us about all kinds of things he's writing on Forbes.com and his website. So he's here to talk about why Christians should care about competition. And I think it's an important message to listen to, and we hope you enjoy. All right, let me kind of tell you guys what the outline is before we uh, before we really get going. Now then, have, had you been able to actually see the uh, the screen a second ago and seen the picture, you'd have seen an, an image of a famous painting of Adam Smith. And Adam Smith, it turns out, was a smooth operator. And Smith was saying, hey, girl, you're not just loved, you're lovely. Because a big part of Smith's program and a big smart part of Smith's project was not necessarily just about – the Wealth of Nations, which is the title of his second book, but rather it was about moral sentiments, which is the title of his 1759 book. And if you're a listener to Econ Talk, which is uh, one of the best podcasts on the internet, you can be virtually certain that Russ Roberts, the host, will at some point quote Adam Smith saying, uh, we seek not just to be loved, but to be lovely. And part of what I'm going to talk about tonight is how we can love and be lovely in competitive markets. So just quickly... What I'm gonna what I'm gonna talk about with respect to competition. First, I'll say a couple of things about some of my early thoughts about competition when I was in high school and was listening to classic rock and uh, having the sorts of thoughts that angsty teenagers have. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about how a lot of economists think about competition, whether competition is an outcome or a process. I'll say a few things about who competes, just to make sure that we have our our terms straight, make sure that we. Uh, that we know exactly what we're talking about when we say competition. I will ask about whether competition corrupts our souls or not. And then I'm going to close by talking about uh, an illustration from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, specifically from Chapter 2 of the Wealth of Nations, in which Smith offers – or which, uh, he offers a, a very, very well-known passage that I think is often misinterpreted about self-love and self-interest and – um, how we get the butcher, the baker, the brewer to provide our dinner for us. And I think this actually has some really interesting implications for how we understand appropriate action with respect to one another as entities or as creatures, as beings that literally bear the image of Almighty God. So I'm going to talk a little bit, then I'm going to take questions. I'm looking forward to a really, really interesting chat. 
So you might be familiar with the rock band Boston. One of the first concerts I ever went to was in, in the early to mid-90s. Boston played at the Polaris Amphitheater in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I grew up. And um, I got interested in their music, and they've got a great song called Peace of Mind. And I remember that when I first started listening to the song Peace of Mind, thinking about the thinking about the chorus, I understand about indecision. I don't care if I get behind people living in competition. All I want is to have my peace of mind. And that sounds great. And I thought, wow, that sounds that makes it sound like socialism would be awesome. I was a teenager, so I, I didn't really know really the difference between capitalism and socialism. I thought, man, wouldn't life be great if we weren't living in competition? Wouldn't life be great if we could have our peace of mind, if we could all just get together and cooperate and not have to stress about all this competitive blah, 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 blah. Okay? Unsurprisingly, a lot of you probably think that that's a, that was a, a rather naive thing for teenage me to think, and it is something that with the benefit of a couple of decades of hindsight, I would agree was a very, very naive thing for teenage me to think, because um, I think competition is not something to be lamented. It is something to be at the very least tolerated and possibly celebrated in much the same way that if we think about the way people have thought about work over the last couple of decades – uh, or well, the last couple of centuries, there's there's one tradition holding that work is a curse. And another tradition argues that that's actually not the case, that work predates the fall of man, that work is a blessing of God. Work is, is one of the ways that we work out our creation in the image of God. And when we work out our, our position and our status as sub-creators with God, I think we can say something similar about competition. The competition is is a blessing. The competition is not a curse. The competition is something that, as I tell my students, sometimes we can look at. We, we can look at it. We can say, well, if when we observe the natural world, we can say that the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look at the social world, I think, and I'm, I'm not being entirely facetious when I say this. We can say that economics. We can say that the the outcome of the competitive marketplace also declares the glory of God because it takes our, our, our limited and fallen humanity and turns it into a mechanism of cooperation generating beautiful outcomes that no individual mind could design. Which makes me ask a couple of questions about what we mean when we say competition. Is competition an outcome or is competition a process? Now, if you've taken a, a sort of standard microeconomics course in college, you probably learned about the perfectly competitive marketplace or the, the model of perfect competition. And the perfectly competitive model that uh, a lot of economists use for a bunch of different things is an extremely useful workhorse that allows us to derive a lot of very, very, very important insights. And under perfect competition, um, economists argue that markets, competitive decentralized markets, will move us to a first best outcome that not even God can improve on that is literally the best of all conceivable worlds. We maximize gains from trade and it is impossible in the competitive equilibrium in a perfectly competitive market to make at least one person better off without hurting somebody else. And um, often you'll hear people in, in, a, in a standard economics course, you'll hear people list the conditions under which markets can be said to be perfectly competitive. So market is perfectly competitive if, they're competitive if there's an infinite number of buyers and sellers, for example. Um, a market is perfectly competitive if there's perfect knowledge and perfect information. 
So if everybody knows literally everything, um, a market is perfectly competitive if there are no transaction costs, meaning that, that, that you can costlessly exchange goods, services, ideas, everything. Markets are perfectly competitive if there's literally a market for every conceivable thing. Markets are perfectly competitive if you have free disposal. Okay. And markets are perfectly competitive if firms are price takers, so if nobody has any kind of market power. Under these circumstances, markets can be said to be perfectly competitive, and any outcome that that market will generate will be literally as good as we can conceivably imagine. And that's very, very useful as a way of, of um, deriving testable predictions about the world, and it's really, really useful as a way of arriving at insight about the world. It's not a terribly realistic model, but it's one that has uh, an incredible amount of power if we really want to understand how the world works. I think for a lot of people and a lot of economists, unfortunately, um, it's easy to confuse the competitive process with the competitive outcome or to confuse, in some cases, the conditions under which a market can be said to be perfectly competitive with the outcome. Then when we say that um, this market is competitive, it has generated a condition that we might call competition. But I think that misunderstands what competition is and it misunderstands what competition does. I don't think that competition is an outcome in that the Federal Trade Commission can look at a particular market structure and say that market is competitive or the outcome of this market is a competitive outcome. Rather, I think competition is more usefully thought of as a process. And it's a process that takes advantage of or that deals with the fact that we are irredeemably ignorant. We are irremediably ignorant. We are probably fundamentally self-interested. There's an awful lot that we don't know. And furthermore, our, our minds do not work perfectly. So we're not the, uh, the rational, we're not the rational lightning calculators of pleasure and pain that the economist Thorsten Veblen discussed in the early 20th century, but I don't think that's necessarily a knock against competition. Competition, fundamentally as a process, is a search for gains from trade. It's a search for ways to harmonize interests with talents. It's a, it's a search for ways that we can harmonize what people want with what other people are capable of providing. And there I think we, there I think we get into, in, into a, a much richer and much more useful understanding of, first of all, the nature of social interaction. And second, I think, the nature of who we are as beings or entities created in the image of God. And so this raises a question, and that question is who competes? So my students, my principals and macro students are going to be taking the final next week. And one of the things that I, I, I try to really press them on is the fact that sellers compete with other sellers for the, white, the right to cooperate with buyers. Sellers compete with other sellers for the, white, the right, second time I've done that, for the right to cooperate with buyers, and buyers compete with other buyers for the right to cooperate with sellers. So first, when people think about competition, it's not, it's not some sort of struggle between, between buyers and sellers. There's not some sort of struggle between capital and labor, the way that, uh, uh, the way that sort of like Marxist interpretations of history uh, might think of competition. Rather, it's a process by which buyers and other buyers try to outdo one another for the right and the ability to compete and cooperate with sellers, and sellers work hard to outdo one another for the right to cooperate with potential buyers to cooperate 
commerce. Okay, and this process, this process is one of searching for gains from trade. It's a process of searching for mutually beneficial interactions and mutually beneficial transactions that make both buyer buyer better off and seller better off. When we think about a competitive process, we think about a competitive process, it's fundamental in this sort of situation for a society to be characterized by private ownership of the means of production. Now, why is this the case? Here, let's get back to back to teenage me singing Boston songs and, and sort of wistfully thinking that life would be great if we didn't have to compete, if we could just cooperate and we, if we all had our peace of mind and you know all this wonderful sort of stuff. Well, in the early 20th century, a lot of economists thought that we could dispense with private property and create some type of utopia. And if not a utopia, at the very least, a situation in which we're, pr- we're producing a lot more output with the resources at our disposal by subjecting it all to the scientific management of central planners and elites. Here I'm thinking about an e- economist like Vilfredo Pareto, for example, um, who, among many, many others, argued that economic planning is fundamentally just a constrained optimization problem. You have a certain number of equations, you have a certain number of parameters, you have all this stuff, you smush it all together, and then out pops a solution. In 1920, Ludwig von Mises, an Austrian economist, published an article called Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth. And in it, he started, and I think he should have also ended with this article, the debate over whether over whether socialist calculation is even possible, whether an economy can function without private ownership of the means of production, and whether, furthermore, an economy can function as a rational means-using economic system in the absence of competition. So what does he mean by this? Well, for Mises, well, Mises, Mises makes the argument that competition, that competition in a world with secure private property rights is necessary in order to generate prices. So we have property rights, you're able to have exchange. When you have exchange, you're able to get prices. This exchange process generates prices and these prices reflect the value of all of the means of production, all of the labor, all of the capital, all of the tools, all of the everything. It represents their value in all of the alternative things that could be done with them. We can compare different combinations of inputs labor, capital, et cetera, to the revenue that we can expect to generate from whatever output we can get from this combination of means of production, capital, labor, et cetera, and then choose accordingly with the maximum difference between the revenue that we earn and the cost that we incur being our profit. And the larger the profit, the stronger the signal that we're choosing wisely. So what profits and losses do is they tell people that they're choosing wisely or they're choosing poorly. Think about the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, for example. And think about the knight telling the uh, telling the Nazis, you know, you chose poorly because you know they picked the wrong they picked the wrong cup and bad things happened. Or think about Indiana Jones picking up the right cup and having chosen wisely. Profits and losses are kind of like the the ancient knight at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade telling us you've chosen poorly or you've chosen wisely. A loss is a signal that an entrepreneur has chosen poorly and wasted resources. A profit is a signal that an entrepreneur has chosen wisely and created value. In the absence of private ownership of the means of production and their of competition over 
the use of those means of production, we don't get reliable prices. Therefore, we don't get reliable profits and losses. Therefore, we don't get reliable knowledge about whether we're creating value or not. We don't get reliable knowledge about whether we're successfully and capably serving one another, and this is important, in a manner most consistent with what other people deem to be their best interests. Okay? I would argue that in the absence of profits and losses, we don't get information that tells us whether we are serving one another appropriately as independent and dignified entities each of whom bears the image of God. Prices, profits, and losses, I think, are the social phenomena and the mechanisms that tell us whether we're, whether we're doing that wisely or whether we're doing that poorly. A couple of decades after Mises, in 1945, the economist Friedrich Hayek wrote his classic article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, and it was, in my, in my humble opinion, one of the most, if not the most, important contributions to social science in the 20th century. And in it, Hayek, go, Hayek goes a step further than Mises. Um, he argues that for a lot of the socialists, for the people to whom Mises was responding, and then second, for the people who critiqued Mises, and a lot of people thought incorrectly, I believe, that Mises had been refuted by these guys, he, he argued that they're, they're constructing the economic problem all wrong. They're saying effectively that the economic problem is a problem of taking known inputs, known technologies, and known preferences and combining them all as effectively a system of equations out of which will pop or out of which will fall appropriate vectors of prices for final goods and services and appropriate vectors of prices for, uh, for inputs, inputs intermediate and inputs ultimate. Hayek argues, though, that that is fundamentally not the social problem. If, in fact, you basically set up, set up the entire economy as a constrained optimization problem, then the, then the solution is trivial. But the argument that he makes is, is, is even bigger, I think, than Mises' argument. His argument is that fundamentally the problem, the, the problem that society faces is one of using knowledge that is distributed across, in the world today, some 7.5 billion minds – all of which are in different different places age-wise, different places geographically, different places culturally, um, different preferences, different ideas about, about how the world works, different tastes, different talents, different treasure, difference, 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 difference. Hayek's argument or Hayek's, Hayek's claim is that fundamentally the, the economic problem is a problem of making use of all of this decentralized knowledge. And competition, Hayek argues, is the discovery procedure. And indeed, he has an article called Competition as a Discovery Procedure. It is, it is the process or the mechanism by which we're able to harness and deploy other people's knowledge. So what competition allows us to do, and again, competition guided by profits and losses, competition that forms reliable prices for inputs, outputs, and consumer goods, what competition does is it allows us to harness and deploy knowledge that we don't have for purposes that other people don't understand and of which those other people may not approve. And this is one of the beauties of competition as a social process. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. 
If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. One might argue, or one might ask, but doesn't competition somehow corrupt our souls? Aren't we worse off? Aren't we undignified, perhaps, because we become these grasping and greedy, profit-seeking, competing, advantage-taking sort of subhumans in a way. And one might make, one might make the argument that yeah, that, that is in fact the case. If one is if one is is if one is too focused on mammon, then one is likely to be corrupted and one is likely to to fall short of one's potential um, as as a creature created in the image of God. But that is independent of any social system. That's independent of any social system. One can be greedy under capitalism, one can also be greedy under socialism, communism, feudalism, any other ism that is out there. And I think there's a fairly strong case to be made. And an argument that, that the economist Deidre McCluskey and I are making in a, a book that we hope to finish soon, um, that free market capitalism, buying low, selling high, innovating, et cetera, does not corrupt our souls, but in fact betters them in no small part because we are bound in a free market capitalist order to respect one another, to honor one another's liberty, to honor one another's dignity, and to become the least, so to speak. Um, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, and all that. We, um, we humble ourselves before God, we humble ourselves before each other, and we do for others as, um, well, we do for others as, as we would have them do unto us. We take care of them, we satisfy their preferences, and we come up with ways to do stuff that they want done in ways that they find uh, ways that they find appropriate, um, all while using resources as wisely and efficiently as we can. Now, one might ask again, yeah, but, but doesn't competition somehow corrupt our souls? Because if you look at a lot of stuff that gets done in the business world, there's a lot of stuff that gets done in the business world that's just, just icky and gross, quite frankly. Um, a lot of really bad business practices out there. But again, if we take a if we take a sort of a broader historical look at uh, at all of this, we've always had sin with us. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear on this. In, in Genesis, God looks at, at man and says, you, "Every every thought, uh, every intention of the thought of his heart, if, I, if I'm quoting this correctly, was only evil continually." And then later in Jeremiah, it says, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked." So these, I think, are are constants in the human condition or constants in the fallen human condition. Um, if we're thinking about, about desirable institutions, the competitive institutions of a free market capitalist system would be institutions in which our sort of the better angels of our nature and the darker angels of our nature are both directed towards serving one another and towards serving other people. Think about, uh, think about someone of a truly awful, truly horrible, truly wretched disposition. Um, there's actually a really funny, it's a really funny Onion article about this. Uh, gosh, sometime within the, within the last couple of years. So someone who is just just a truly terrible, awful human being. Well, 500 years ago, that person probably would have been a warlord 
A thousand years ago, that person probably would have been a warlord, probably would have been leading armies, sacking villages and things like that. Now that person is selling couches at a furniture store. I would much, much, much rather have um, a person of that disposition or a person of that set of talents figuring out better ways to sell me soap and to sell me furniture than trying to figure out better ways to stack my city. Um, I think if, if, we're, if we're asking whether competition corrupts our souls, I think the answer is a clear no. And if anything, if anything, the answer is that competition leaves us better off. Yeah, so it's talking about competition and competition corrupting our souls. I think a sort of a specific example, uh, a specific example of this might be sort of like the current presidential administration. Um, if we think about the, the importance of power, okay, if we think about the importance of power, specifically political power contrasted to commercial incentives and commercial institutions, if there's a lot less political power in the world than maybe Donald Trump is just a real estate developer in Atlantic City. Now, in a world where there's so much grasping over political power, Donald Trump has his finger on the nuclear button. Now, what you might think about, think what you might about President Trump, I would much, much, much rather have, I'd much rather he be building casinos than uh, potentially starting wars, like shooting wars or prosecuting trade wars. Okay, which leads us, and this is uh, this is what we're gonna, we're going to close out on before we uh, before we move into questions and answers, and that is uh, that concerns some stuff that's in chapter two of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and this is the famous passage in which Smith talks about self love and self interest. So he he specifically says, and I'm going to paraphrase here that it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, and the brewer that we, re- that we expect our dinner. Rather, it's from their attention to their own self-love. We don't get the butcher, the baker, the brewer to do for us by appealing to their humanity, Smith says. We don't get the butcher, the baker, the brewer, etc., to do for us by telling them all of the stuff that we need. Indeed, we get the butcher, the baker, the brewer to do for us by appealing to their own self-love. Okay, well, let's I'll say a couple of things about, about kind of how that might manifest itself here in just a little bit. Okay, but a lot of this stems from a, from a, a fundamentally human problem. And that is that if we're going to have, or if we're going to have a, at least a moderate, moderately prosperous life, we're going to need to have the cooperation of hundreds or thousands or millions or billions of people. Smith uses a very specific example of a wool coat. And you probably read, uh, you probably read Leonard Reed's essay, I Pencil. Um, but Reed's essay, I Pencil, is, is kind of inspired by Smith's example of the wool coat. So here I've got my, my corduroy jacket. Think about the hundreds, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who were involved in the production of this corduroy jacket. So just quickly, I'm gonna see, where is this manufactured? Let's see here. And what's it made out of? So it is made in China, Ralph Lauren, okay, Macy's. So, so just here we have a couple, we have at least three different groups of people. First, the people working in the factory in China who stitched the jacket. Second, the people at Ralph Lauren who designed the jacket. And then third, the people at Macy's who said, hey, you know what we could do? We could sell these corduroy jackets at a price that we find attractive and in such a way as to, as, as to make some money. And who ensured that I got the jacket ultimately, or honestly, my wife got the jacket because she's one with fashion sense. 
um, that the, the, the jacket somehow ended on ended up on my back. Okay, that's three groups of pe- groups of people on whom I relied for the fact that I'm you know comfortably warm right now. It's quite frankly a chilly evening in Birmingham, Alabama. Then if we take that a step back, we think about all of the people who cooked the meals that were eaten by the garment workers in China who stitched the jacket, the designers probably in New York, Lorena's headquartered, and the people who worked in the Macy's retail store. So that's another layer of people who contributed to, you know, contributed to me being able to have sort of a nice, cozy, comfortable, warm jacket. And then pushing that back a step, there are people who clothed all of those folks. And as you keep going, as you keep going, this gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more complex and more complex and more complex and more complex. And it's unlike anything that we see in the animal kingdom. You know, you have pack animals that hunt kind of out of instinct. There are, there are rudiments of cooperation. But like Smith said, you've never seen a dog make a fair exchange of a bone with another dog. Whereas people cooperate like this all the time. And Smith argues Man has constant occasion for the help of his brethren. We have constant occasion for, first, chances to help one another, and second, an inexhaustible list of things that we could, can think of for other people to be doing for us. Let's get back to the butcher, the baker, and the brewer for just a second. Because they butch, they bake, they brew, they cut meat, they cook bread, they brew you know, beer or grape juice or whatever – and they provided to people for their meals. They don't do this necessarily because they're good people, and I'm sure a lot of them are, but what Smith is getting at here in saying we appeal to their self-love is that it is prudent for us to do so, and furthermore, I think, I think Smith argues that it is just for us to do so because we're not really that special. There's no reason necessarily why the butcher, the baker, and the brewer should pay attention to us, you and me specifically, when they probably have their own lives to live. The butcher's probably got kids. He's probably got a, he's probably got a wife. He's probably got a family and a church he needs to support and all sorts of different things. He has an infinite number of claims on his time. If I want him to do anything for me, if I want him to cut pork chops for me, then I've got to find a way to make it worth his while. Similar with the ba- similarly, the baker is probably in the same situation. The baker almost certainly has a practically infinite number of people who want him to do things for him. Specifically, a lot of people probably want him to bake bread. I would imagine he has children. I'd imagine he probably has a family. I don't know, maybe he's got kids that he needs to read to. At night, he's got to have some way, some mechanism by which he decides to bake bread for me rather than doing any of a number of other things he could be doing, like, I don't know, say baking bread for somebody else. Similar story with the brewer. Okay, and I think what Smith is what Smith is getting at here, and there's a really, really important theological, a really, really important well, theological may not be the right word, but a really important point about um, I think that the nature and dignity of man as as an entity created in the image of God here, and that is that we sh- we cannot and should not expect other people to serve us because we are great, or to serve us because we have needs, rather. Other people have the right to refuse. Other people have the right to say no. And indeed, if we want people to do for us, it's incumbent upon us to persuade them. It is incumbent upon us to do for them. And I think a really, really important part, a really, really important part of 
respecting the image of God in other people is recognizing first that they are not our servants. Other people are not our servants. They do not exist for us, to borrow a phrase from the philosopher Edward Fazer. Other people are not a property. Again, to kind of go, go cliche there, they're not there so that we can eat. They're not there so that we can have bread. They're not there so that we can have beer. They're not there for us to snap at and to be available to, to, to serve us at our, every, at our every beck and call. Rather, we're obliged, I think, and, and Smith recognizes this, I think, to make the world a better place for them however they choose to define it if we want them to make the world a better place for us, however we choose to define it. And that might include, in the, in the example that Smith gives, cutting meat, baking bread, brewing beer. To which one might ask, well, what if, what if, people, what if people want terrible things? That's entirely possible. And this requires, I think, a certain degree of moral maturity. You know, maybe we don't do things that, are, that, that we, we think are immoral or awful, we don't try to encourage that necessarily. But moreover, I think an important part of respecting other people as independent and dignified moral agents is to avoid force wherever possible. If God will not override the human conscience, then it's not clear to me that we have the right to do that either. So when I think about why Christians should care about competition, I think there are a couple of there are a handful of reasons. One of them instrumental; it's produced all sorts of prosperity and things like that. And the other is, I think that fundamentally and much more deeply, competition is one. Competition is is a social mechanism by which we are able to respect, enjoy, and appreciate the image of God in others. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.